Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. I do not root. You know this. It's one of the rules of this show. I am paid not to root. You got that? Not only do I not root, they pay me not to root. So let me be honest. I'm going to admit that I was rooting. I was rooting for Philadelphia to win last night because I want to keep that series going. Philly, Boston, not just a good series, and it was that, but it was more than that. It was a war of petty, and it was awesome. I mean, before that game got tipped off, I do have to admit, I had a bad feeling for Philly, not because the game was in Boston, not because the Celtics have been much better at home than on the road in the playoffs, and not because I knew the Celtics would come out with that edge, with that nasty, but because of a photo that I saw before the game. Check this out. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, you'll see it. What was in that photo? The photo I'm talking about, Drew Bledsoe and Terry Rozier. Together, at last, the culmination of a series worth of memes. First, it was Terry Rozier showing up at the Garden in a Bledsoe jersey. Then, it was Bledsoe taking to Instagram in a scary T or scary Terry T. And now these guys are side by side. I mean, side by side and like unstoppable. You see the two of those cats together? It's like Batman and Superman. You name me a more iconic duo. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait a little longer. It's Ionic. Ionic. That's when I knew Philadelphia was finished. At that point, if you had told me the final score was going to be 114 to 112, I would have said it's a Celtic win and a Celtic series. Because if Drew Bledsoe comes into your house and sits courtside, you're in trouble. And if he comes into your house and sits courtside in an autographed Terry Rozier jersey, then it's over. Except Philly didn't come out and roll over. These guys hung in. They battled. They fought. It was a game with 21 lead changes. And just when it looked like it might be slipping away from Philly in the third quarter, Joel Embiid turned in a monster quarter. But then came the fourth, and that's when the pressure ramps up. And when the pressure gets higher, the Celtics always get better. There was Al Horford on an alley-oop to get Boston within two. Waste any time, just shot it back up over his head. Tatum up top. Oh, my goodness! Al Horford! Al Horford, 10 years in, and this dude is still dropping out of the rafters. I didn't know he had that, had that in him, but he did. And then you've got Marcus Smart tying it at 109 and then making the play at the other end that led to a Philly turnover that led to this. Terry Rozier drawing some traffic. Who's going to take the big shot? Tatum. And Tatum scores! Boston on top! Even then, Philadelphia still had a chance. Down two. They get the ball into Embiid in the post with Aaron Baines on him. And then this happened. Ben looking. He's got to get it in. He does the coverage. And now they go to Embiid. Embiid against Baines. Quick drive. Embiid against Baines. Shoots it. No good. Embiid with a rebound 12 seconds ago. Rozier takes it away. It's out of bounds. And Boston is going to get the ball. Terry Rozier knocked it away from Embiid. Embiid falls out of bounds. The Sixers' biggest player had two cracks at it down low and could not score it. And then Rozier came and knocked it away. And the Boston Celtics with 10.2 to go with a two-point lead will have the ball. That was clutch. That was so clutch. So brass. So Boston. When asked about that later on, Rogier was just Rogier about it. Quote, 
Just a championship play, that's all. Not too much to say about it. End quote. It's cold-blooded. But the guy's right. That was a championship play, and there really isn't a hell of a lot to say about it. Boston makes plays like that. Even guys who you don't expect to make plays like that for Boston make plays like that. I mean, yeah, I'd expect Kyrie or Gordon or Horford to make plays like that. But at the start of the season, would you really have expected Terry Rozier to be making a clutch strip in the final seconds of an elimination game? I mean, yeah, Celtic honks will tell you they always believed in Marcus Smart. But did you really believe that that guy would be such a force and a savage who'd be making winning plays on both ends of the floor to close out Philly? Even when Smart messed up by missing a foul shot that he intended to make and making the foul shot he intended to miss, this guy still came up with the steal to ice the game. So, a 4-1 series. A 4-1 series that felt... Pretty close, and then not close at all. But the difference was Boston executed in pressure, and Philadelphia did not. Boston does not blink. They don't cave. They just execute, and now they advance. Even though most left them for dead midseason, they're right back to where they were a year ago. And they're there without two huge pieces. It's a tribute to the guys they do have. It's a tribute to their coach, Brad Stevens, who might be the best basketball coach on the planet right now. So, they move on, they advance, and we're right back as to where we were a year ago, Cavs and Celtics, and these two teams, frankly, couldn't be more different than they were then, but they're both back. And then the big question, the major question, what do you do about LeBron? Cody Garbrandt joins me in studio. Cody, it's great to see you. How are things this morning? What's going on? Great. We just flew in from New York, so uh, it's good to be on the West Coast. You know, the weather is awesome. It's great to be in here and, you know, start this tour here in L.A. All right. It's good to have you in here. I want to talk to you about your book, but your guy came in, Uriah Faber, right before. Man, I love him. We go back. I love him. He's been talking you up on this show for many, many years. It was great to see him in the house. What's he meant to you in your career? He's meant so much to me in my career. I mean, before I even met the guy, I kind of, you know, gravitated towards him in the WC. You know, he was the the poster boy child for the for the fighting. He could he could speak well, he could fight well. He did it all. So it's something that I wanted to do. He he you know, built a gym, you know, with his dream and it, and it turned into my dream, making it out here all the way from a small town in Ohio and that was it. You know, final destination was the world champion. They they turned me into a world champion out there. So I'm forever grateful for him. We fly in from New York. He's texting me the whole time. He's like, I'm going to come down. I'm flying down when you get there. He goes, we're, you know, Rob, our buddy, we stay with here in Orange County. We have mats there. So he's like, we're going to do an hour grind match. I'm like, I'm off. The, I just did media all day from like five in the morning, New York time, flew all the way over here. Favorite flies from Sacramento just to, you know, get, push me, you know. So he's always wanting to push me. You know, he has a big fight coming up August 4th, and we're going to get this one back. So just always there for me. Great guy. Cody Carbrand joining me in studio. So you've got a book out now. And, you know, you've done a lot of things in your life. You've got a lot of things to be proud of. It's one thing to put yourself out there athletically. It's another to put yourself out there artistically. And as an author, what's it like to release a book? What's that process been like? It's been a long process. You know, it's really surreal for me. We went to New York and, like I said, did the media tour there. So that kind of when it hit me when I first had the hard copy in the book and started doing the press tour. And, you know, it was definitely a, a time in my life, I think, that, we needed to get the story out with, with my story, then meeting Maddox, and then we making the pack and the promise of winning the world championship. Now that part of our journey is over with. We I won the world championship. Maddox is in remission now four years and uh, beat cancer. So, you know, we're going to go down a different journey, a different path, and still have each other. But I think it's, it was very important at this time to, to share our story and to share his story, share his battle, what he went through, and what we went through together to make it to the top. 
Listen, there's releasing a book. Lots of guys have books. And then there's releasing a book like this. For those who don't know, who is Maddox Maple? And how did you first come into contact with Maddox? Maddox Maple was a five-year-old from my same hometown in uh, Yorkville, Ohio. And my brother actually reached out to me about, you know, I was an amateur fighter at the time. And we fought for ticket sales. So he said, you know, you should you know, reach out to the family, do a benefit for him. You know, give your ticket sales to the family and just show everyone that, you know, the community to get them rally around that they don't have to do this battle alone. So I reached out to Mick, which is Maddox's father on Facebook, uh, when he first had his early onset battles with leukemia. And they reached, me, reached back to me and said, you know, once Maddox is cleared to come home and have visitors, we'll, we'd love to meet you. I just wanted to get their story and just tell them that we'd like to, you know, help you out on this fight and show you don't have to do this battle alone. And uh, went down there and met him, the story for, you know, told me about their life and what happened. And I was there for a little over an hour and I left that day kind of just feeling changed, challenged and renewed. Like I needed to, what I was at in my life too was some dark place. I left college twice. I was about to join the coal yeah, Cody, mine. where were you? Where, okay, where were you at your point in your life in terms of maturity? Where were you emotionally? What was your life like when you first met Maddox? Man, I was going down some wrong paths. I got, like I said, I left college twice. So I was, I had full, full ride scholarships to colleges and I uh, left that. I just listened to everybody else. Everyone wanted me to, you know, not put my eggs in one basket, get the degree. I wanted the fight. I wanted the fight ever since I was young. That's all I knew and that's all I loved. It was truly my passion. And I listened to everybody else, but, uh, you know, I left college twice and kind of was, I was young, I was 18 and trying to figure it out, you know, figure it out. But I was still doing cage fighting, but I wasn't living the right lifestyle to progress in that career. You know, I was going out with my friends and got, you know, caught up with some of the wrong people and, you know, trying to get out of my hometown. It's game seven of the Preds v. Jets, so you know I am not going anywhere tonight. No chance. I'm going to use Thrive Market instead. Thrive Market is stocked with thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below traditional retail prices. They've got everything you need, whether your diet is paleo, gluten-free, vegan, kosher, plus personal care products, eco-friendly cleaning supplies, safe and non-toxic beauty products, organic baby food, kids' products, and so much more. Who knows? They may even have catfish. Click on a product and you'll see things like why you'll love it, price comparisons to retail, nutritional information, and more. You can shop knowing that you are getting the very best ingredients, the most affordable prices, and it's all safe for your family. Thrive Market's prices are already up to 50% off. And now, they're giving you an extra $60 in free groceries plus free shipping. Get $60 of free organic groceries plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Get signed up right now so your pantry is stocked up in time for game seven. How did yeah. the coal mines figure into this? Well, my brother worked in the coal mines. We have a coal mine in our hometown, and that's what a lot of people would go do. And you'd get their certificate and uh, went to a coal mining class and passed a test and, you know, had job interviews coming in. I remember uh, sitting down with my mom after the job. She said, you want to go take this job interview? And I just sat her down. I was like, honestly, mom, I really don't want to go work in the mine. Uh, trust me, just please believe in me, like, give me till I'm 25, I'll make this happen. And she was like my supporter, my rock. She's been there since I was young. You know, she put us in wrestling, traveled all over the country with us uh, to these wrestling tournaments, boxing, never missed a fight. I had my first fight at 14, so she's she's my rock. And she told me, you know, I support you with whatever you do. Just do it wholeheartedly and do it with passion and just have fun doing it. And uh, that, that was all I needed, just that little, you know, boost from my mom. And then started getting back on my feet, training, get back in the gym and, and that's when I, you know, started 
reach out to Maddox for my next fight and was still dabbling in some troubles, ended up getting into a bar fight, getting stabbed. You, yeah, I was going to say, you got stabbed in a bar fight. Yeah. What happened? Uh, it was just a kind of, honestly, it's a, the wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. And uh, just kind of escalated. A couple of fights broke out in the bar that, that spilled out into like the gravel parking lot. And there was just bodies getting knocked out. People were just fighting with everybody. I was trying to get back to my car. I was picking up one of my friends and this guy came out of nowhere, kind of just ran about how bad he was and this and that. I just didn't want no problems. You know, I was in flip-flops or for crying out loud and just trying to get out of the start. It was, it was a nice summer day, but it started raining. So everyone kind of came to this, came to this one bar and it was packed. And just the vibe kind of switched after it started raining and everyone was already wasted and just, you know, just not a good time. And, uh, you know, he came out of nowhere and he ended up stabbing my friend, severing his uh, bicep. There was, you know, and so we didn't know that, you know, he was out there to really hurt people and uh, ended up stabbing me in my leg. I was able to defend myself and get away. And you know, that was just kind of a wake up call for me, you know, like, wow, I've, you know, I'm doing some wrong stuff. And Max came into my life, you know, shortly after that and kind of just really redirected my faith and focus and, and my purpose in life. Like, why am I living like this? Why am I, I, have, I have a bigger dream and goal in life to, and bigger purpose in life than just what I'm doing here. And that's really what, you know, motivated me to keep going forward and and my dream. Cody Garbrandt joining me in studio. He's got a book out, and it's called The Pact, a UFC champion, a boy with cancer, and their promise to win the ultimate battle. I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack there. You talk about growing up, and you were trying to find yourself, and things were not going so well. You were not running with the right crew. You get stabbed, and then you meet Maddox. So when you first met him, when you first started to interact with him, what did you think about him? I remember the first day going to his house, um, and I'm meeting the, the family, the parents, and himself, and I remember seeing this little kid. I had a sister the same age as him, and he had lost his hair. And How old was he at that he point? Five years old, five okay. and a half. His whole world just changed around. He literally, they thought there was a, a, a burst of appendix, and uh, so they rushed him to the hospital, and next thing you know, they're getting a trike, you know, they're getting a port put in his chest and getting his first chemotherapy. So, I mean, it just, I mean, 24 hours just changed his whole entire life, and it was a few weeks after that whole, whole ordeal, and he came home, and, I had seen a kid with a lot of life to live. I just, whatever I saw, I just knew that. I told his parents, like, I know he's going to beat this cancer. I know he, I just knew he was going to be a warrior. He's going to be, he's a fighter. And uh, we just met, made that pact and that bond. And I'd always, you know, I lived in Cleveland. I moved around a lot. Uh, but I'd always come see him, visit him when I would come home to my hometown. Because uh, I try to stay away from there as much as I can. But I had still had family there and, uh, and roots. So I would go and visit my family on the weekends and would see him. And, and then I ended up venturing out to California. So every time I would come back from California, we would just... I would come pick him up from school or do anything with him. He'd come to all my fights. He'd walk me down to my fights. And that was something that he looked forward to in his battle. He'd be sick. And, you know, that was like, okay, we're fighting. He knows that he gets to walk me down to the, down to the cage. And that was something that he enjoyed. He's like, oh, would always text me. He's so excited about seeing me in the fight week and walking me down. So we've been doing this since, you know, I was an amateur. So there was an immediate connection. And I, and I want to say my father had leukemia and died from leukemia. It's like the worst thing ever, except for a child who has it. It's the scariest thing ever. So the two of you come up with a pact. The book is about the pact. What is the pact? Um, the pact's about about seven months left in chemotherapy. So he's, you know, he's almost tor- towards the tail end of it. And he's doing so well. I mean, just, just a warrior, just completely, you know, waking up every day and just fighting this horrible disease that took over his body. And I get a call from Mick Maple, his father. I was out in Sacramento, uh, California. Actually just jumped off the, off of practice. Actually, I ran. And uh, he called me, and it's not like Mick to call me like that, kind of out of the blue. And I could just feel the disconcern in his voice. And he, he told me, he said, Cody, I really need your help. And I was like, well, what can I do for you, Mick? And 
he said, you know, Maddox, I think we're going to lose Maddox. I think, he, I think he wants to die. He doesn't want to take his medicine anymore. And my heart kind of just sank. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, what, what can I do? I'm in California. With, what's going on? And uh, he's like, we know if anyone can get his little heart turned around, it'll be you. He, he loves you. He looks up to you so much. You've helped him out so much. And in return, I'm thinking in my mind, this little kid has helped me out so much in my life and inspired me and motivated me to become a better person and live life with more purpose and, and fight with more purpose. You know, so I would do anything for this kid. So I hang up the phone and I'm thinking, what am I going to say to this kid How, to change his heart, you know, to, to take his medicine and want to keep, you know, fighting this battle. And I it's call him a couple, conversation. Yeah, man. very important. You know, I'm like, I finally, you know, gathered what I was going to say and just, you know, spoke from my heart, honestly. Like, it was, what am I going to say? And I just ended up calling him and getting the, you picked up. And I said, Maddox, what's going on, buddy? He's like, oh, you know, he's kind of, you could tell he's a little down and out. I was like, how we doing, man? What's going on? And he started getting a little smile coming back to himself. And I said, hey, listen, I'm just going to be, I was just real raw and real with him about it. I said, look, Maddox, if you don't take your medicine, I said, you're going to die. You know, point blank. I said, we promised each other that, you know, we're going to have each other in these fights. I said, Who, who's going to walk me down to my battles? Who's going to walk me down to my cage? I said, I need you there. I said, you're there with me. I said, I'm here with you in your battle, you know. I said, I promise you this. You take your chemo and you don't complain because he was, you know, getting really angry at his parents and was hating them and mad at them for making them, forcing them to take this medicine, you know. So it was a trying time for the family and himself. So you don't complain about taking your medicine. You have seven months left. You've been doing so well. I promise you that if you beat cancer, I promise you I'll make it to the UFC and I'll take you to every fight with me, you know. Every fight with me and we'll win the world title together. And he's like, all right, Cody, I'll do that. Hung up the phone. We stayed in contact throughout the last, you know, the seven months and saw each other here and there. And uh, August 25th, a little kid called me and said, Hey, Cody, I kept my end of the promise. It's your turn. And that, like, at a place in my he time. finished off the last seven months, right? Finished off the last seven months and complained about it. Called me August 25th, his remission date, last dose of chemo. Called me and said, I kept my promise. Now it's your turn to keep your promise. And where I was at in my life, too, I was not signed to the UFC. I think I was 4 or 5 and 0 in the UFC, or in, prior as a pro. And I couldn't get a fight. I was trying to get a fight. Uriah was trying to help. I just... I was knocking all these guys out. I'm like, what, what's going to take to get to the UFC? Finally, I got a, a fight in my hometown. Uh, and the first fight that Uriah came from, he actually flew from Tokyo all the way to Ohio. And he had flip-flops on. I was in the middle of winter, the no jacket. Like, the he, best. Just the best guy, I mean, honestly. And uh, it was awesome. So it was my last fight. It was in my close to my hometown. And my fans all there. Maddox was there. And I'm knocking this guy out in the first round. And then Sean Shelby hit me up on Twitter. Um, this was like a couple months after... Maddox, you know, told me so. Kind of just re, re motivated me to like, all right, we're, I got my promise. He did his. Now it's mine. You got to fulfill your end of the pack. Fulfill it. And I was kind of at a point like, man, what do I got to do to get in the UFC? Got the fight, knocked the guy out. Sean Shelby messaged me on Twitter and said, hey, who's your manager? And I don't didn't have a manager at the time. I was doing it all myself. My mom would help me sell tickets and book the fights and. You know, so I call Uriah. I remember meeting him ten months prior to this, nine months prior to this, joining the team and. We all we did was shake hands and said, "Get the five and zero, I'll get you in the UFC." So that was my fixated number. It was five and zero to get to the UFC. That was the goal. That was the goal. And so I call Uriah. I said, "Hey, Sean's calling me, texting me, and asking him who my manager is." And I remember we shook hands ten months ago. And he said that you take care of me. He goes, "Okay, awesome." And calls management. They they got with me. We ended up squaring away. I get signed in the UFC a couple months after Maddox 
you know, took his last dose of chemotherapy, and then we was, you know, five, January so, 3rd. So, Cody, do this for me. So, you go ahead to UFC 207, and you're facing Dominic Cruz, mm-hmm. and he's a legend. He hadn't lost for nearly a decade for the Bantamweight title. You've got Maddox by your side. It's an amazing fight. It goes to the scorecards as the scores are being read, knowing everything that you've been through, that Maddox has been through, what's going through your mind? Going through my mind, I thought I had, I thought I won the fight, you know, pretty easily. I thought, you know, but you never know when it goes to the judges. My coach always said in practice, you, you've, you, you put a pace where you could finish the fight at any time. You know, you don't want it to go to the judges. You don't want it to go to the scorecards because you don't know. You don't want that have that have that in their fate. So I'm like sitting there reading the whole time. I'm like, man, I, I, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for the you know the judges to tally it up and Bruce Buffer to come in and Dana and Maddox is there. And I was like, so many thoughts are going through my head. I'm like, man, that was awesome. 25 minutes, just fought one of the best bantamweights, and it was great. It was wonderful. My first title fight, and I'm just like, I, I know I got this. I know I got this. And then uh, they, Bruce Buffer announced my name that I won the, won the title. It kind of still didn't register to me until I saw Maddox. Um, he was on the side jumping up and down in the cage with my uncle, who has my, been my boxing trainer since I was, was very young. They're both jumping up and down. And like, then it hit me. I saw him. And I was just like, oh, man, it's let off this big yell. Like, we did it. You know, it was, it was amazing. So rewarding. The most rewarding night, not only because I won the fight, title okay, fight. What about that? What means more? Winning the title or honoring the pact and fulfilling the pact. I think all of it just combined into one. It was so reward, such a rewarding night for myself and so many other people. Like Uriah was on the long in the journey. Everyone that I met along this journey, that night was all of ours. It was so rewarding for everybody. Everyone was so happy and just on cloud nine. Maddox finally, you know, I got to give them the world title. And he, he carried that thing up and down for two hours. We had media and press and interviews after. It was awesome. He wanted to, they didn't, he didn't, Want to let go of that belt, you know? It was just to see him, I, I would, you know, we'd be do media like it this or interviews. Too. Man, it was his too. I would look over at him in, in the corner of the and in the room, and he would be like just looking at this thing, like this beam, and he it was it was the most incredible night. I think I could probably make an argument that the two of you have done so much for each other. Maybe you saved each other's lives in some way. The fight, let me say, Cody, the fight's coming up. You got a fight coming up this summer. It's August against. Dillashaw, um, we couldn't even get to that fight today because I want to talk about your story and your book. The book is out right now. It's The Pact, a UFC champion, a boy with cancer, and their promise to win the ultimate battle. Cody Garbrandt, my uh, in-studio guest. I know, Cody, a lot of people. I, honestly, I've done this a long time, but I've never heard a story quite like this one, but I know this has inspired a lot of people. I'm going to get a lot of reaction to it. If people want to reach out to you on Twitter or they want to know how to get your book, how do they do it? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Cody underscore no love. You can go to the thepackstory.com, and it's out all retailers and also on Audible. So hopefully they, they like the book. Give me some feedback on my social media platforms. I'd love to hear from you. It's a great book, Cody. Great job. Really nice to have you in studio. Thanks for the visit. Good luck. And you and I will talk again before the end of summer and before your next fight. Yes, sir. Bring the nice title job. back. So how do you improve upon something that's already perfect? 3M figured that out. If you work on a hot, dusty job site or in a loud, wet kitchen, you know how hard it can be to communicate clearly. But now, with new posted extreme notes, you can get your message across and get the job done in any weather condition. That includes rain heat, and even extreme humidity. New Post-it Extreme Notes are water-resistant. They're made with Durahold paper and adhesive, so they will stick to almost anything at all. Concrete, drywall, raw wood, and even brick. So no matter what the task on the job site requires, you can get your message across with new Post-it Extreme Notes. Even as the weather outside is heating up, Post-it Extreme Notes will stick on rough surfaces in the toughest weather conditions. Just because it's raining outside someplace else does not mean that work stops on the job site. With new water-resistant Post-it Extreme Notes, your message will stick on rough surfaces in tough weather conditions. 
We use them here in the studio every single day, and I love the product. New Post-it Extreme Notes. Buy them today wherever you get your Post-it Notes. Let me run down Ichiro's resume very quickly. Rookie of the Year. MVP. 10-time All-Star. 10-time Gold Glove winner. 3-time Silver Slugger. 2-time Batting Champ. 3,089 career hits. Lifetime. 311 batting average. The most famous Japanese-born baseball player of all time. However, all of that does not come close to this. Ichiro will be remembered for a lot of things, but maybe none more than these six words that he dropped in the Marlins clubhouse back in 2017. And I quote, Who the bleep is Tom Brady? This is an actual question that he posed out loud to Don Mattingly after reading a text message from a number that he did not recognize. The text was from somebody that wanted to come study Ichiro's legendary stretching system. One of the coaches in the clubhouse asked who sent it. Ichiro scrolled down and said, quote, some guy named Tom Brady. Who the bleep is Tom Brady? Where do I start? I mean, the most obvious thing being that Ichiro didn't know who Tom Brady was which seems about as likely as Nick Saban not knowing that 2016 was an election year. But then you remember who Ichiro is, and you remember that baseball is his heroine, and that he does pretty much nothing, nothing except play baseball and train and prepare to play baseball. I mean, you ask this guy, I bet he has no idea who LeBron is. He's probably never even heard of Eldrick. He wouldn't know Roger Federer if he smashed him in the face with a racket. Hey, Tommy, don't take it personally. You're just not a baseball or a glove or a bat, so Ichiro has no time for you. The other part of that story, which is uh, pretty interesting and worth discussing, is that Brady is so damn thirsty to extend his career that he's reaching out personally for stretching advice. Seems to me that maybe someone else could have connected these two and that Tom didn't have to cold call Ichiro. It would have saved Tommy the embarrassment of the world finding out that Ichiro doesn't know who the bleep he is. But this guy wants pliability so badly that he's running down a right fielder he doesn't know to get some advice. I mean, this dude is searching. He is searching hard. I wonder how many times Tommy thumbed out Thumbed that text out and deleted it, then rewrote, rewrote it, and then deleted it once again before he finally said, ah, screw it, and hit send. And then he threw the blower over to the phone, over to the couch, all nervous, and waited for a response, like send. And then that, that feeling that once you hit send, like you can't get it back. Now we wait. Now we wait. Yeah, except that the response never came. But here's the part that nobody's talking about. Tom had to get Ichiro's number from somebody. Because if Ichiro doesn't know who the bleep he is, it stands to reason Tom did not get the number from Ichiro. And Tom's not in his phone already because Ichiro didn't know the digits. So, how did he get that number? How did TB12 get Ichiro's number? According to Tom, in the text... To Ichiro, he said he got the number four from, wait for it, Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> of course he did. A-Rod hooked him up. 
A-Rod totally would be out there giving out each row's personal digits. Freaking guy. Now, the common courtesy here is A-Rod tells Tommy he'll reach out to each row for him and then connect the two of them up. You see this all the time. Nope. Nope. Alex just gives up the digits and doesn't even give each row the heads up. Doesn't even tell him, hey, yo, bro, expect a text from the greatest quarterback of all time. He's looking for you to help him loosen up his hamstrings. Nice job, Alex. Way to go, Alex, again. You see, Alex, that faux pas, that little breach in etiquette, made for one of the greatest stories ever. Well, at least for Ichiro. He's the only one who comes out of this looking good. But really, is that's pretty amazing. Tom Brady hitting up Alex Rodriguez for Ichiro's number, for stretching advice, and Ichiro not knowing who the hell Tom Brady is. It's amazing. If I'm in Cooperstown, and this guy's plaque comes down, and they got to figure out what to put on it, it's easy. Come induction time, you just write Ichiro. And under that, doesn't know who the bleep Tom Brady is. And then you put that plaque on the door so it's the first thing that every single visitor sees. I mean, this dude's one of a kind. And A-Rod is somebody you should not give your number to unless you want him to give it out and not give you a heads up. Those digits were in the wrong hands. Who the hell is Tom Brady? Like, like, oh, great. Can you just see this guy looking at his phone before a game? Oh, great. There's some idiot here in the clubhouse who wants me to teach him how to stretch. Probably some dude with a dad bod. How do you get my digits? Oh, great, Alex. There you go, giving away my phone number again. Tom Brady. He had no idea who Tom Brady was. Like I said, this guy could roll right up on LeBron. LeBron could roll right up on him and each row would have no idea who the guy is. Mike Gundy. Mike, it's great to have you back. How are you? I'm good, Jim. What's been going on? Usual stuff. Mike, usual stuff. In fact, let me ask you what's been going on. Like, I'm sure the college football coaches don't have an actual offseason, but spring practices have wrapped up. So maybe, Mike, you've got a little more time than normal. What have you been up to, and how is your life? Well, we're, we're doing good. You know, the recruiting calendar's changed where um, they can take official visits in the spring. So um, we, we've had some official visits. We'll have some more all the way up through the middle of June. Um, little bit shaky on how all that's going to work. It's somewhat confusing, uh, time-consuming, but it's part of what we do. Just got back from Big 12 meetings. Um, nothing like sitting in a room with a group of 35 guys and nothing, nobody ever gets anything done because everybody has an opinion. Um, and, and, and then uh, I've, I've done a little dog training. I adopted a – well, I've got a lot of animals. You know, I lived on a ranch. But I adopted a Portuguese water dog that a, a lady um, couldn't take care of and, and uh, I've been taking her to work with me about the last four months and, and doing some dog training and working on dog tricks and stuff like that. <laughs> that's kind of my that's kind of my new hobby. I was farming uh, quite a bit last week. We finished spring ball and all the coaches are out. You know, head coaches aren't allowed to be out. So I work in the mornings and go home in the afternoons and farm. Uh, been pitchforking some Bermuda sprigs, running some irrigation, um, and, and herding some cows and stuff. So other than that, I've been I've been resting. Damn, Mike, that sounds amazing. Are you are you cool if we don't talk football at all? Can we just talk about the yeah, farm yeah, life? Yeah, I mean, and- we, we, can talk, we can talk anything you want. I've got enough things going on outside of football. We, But football-wise, we had a good spring gym, and, um, you know, we're Mason and James and those guys, or Trey Flowers, are finally gone. So right now, Taylor Cornelius is taking over at quarterback. 
we're all we're running the same plays. We don't change what we do. We're going to play fast. We're going to throw the ball deep as many times as possible, and and uh, try to score as many points. We had a defensive coordinator cha- change, which you probably know. We hired Jim Knowles from Duke, and uh, he's been a great hire for us. Uh, we think, you know, like I joke with him, we'll find out in the fall. He was one of the few guys that actually wanted to coach in the Big Twelve on defense. So football is going good. The players now finished up finals and are in off season, and I'm I'm farming and doing dog tricks. Mike, you're the best. You literally covered every question I was about to ask you. Mike Gundy joining us. What about the dog tricks? How old is this dog? I mean, it's one thing to train athletes, human athletes, but how about training a dog? Is he as receptive to what you have to teach? She's a lot more she. receptive than my own three kids at home and the 130 players on the team. Um, you know, they, they have the, you know, the joke about, uh, um, you know, if you locked up your friend in a trunk and locked your dog up in a trunk for three hours and you open the trunk, your friend would want to throw a punch at you and your dog would be kissing you. Well, that's kind of the way she is. And, right. uh, but anyway, she was very, very hyper type A, ADD. So I had to start taking her to work with me so I could calm her down. But now, now she's actually a therapy dog. She, she'll walk around. She doesn't hardly jump on people and she's got good dog tricks. In fact, I think there's one out on my Twitter right now. Might be worth looking at. Uh, but no, it's been a great, it's been a great spring. Everybody's doing good. And, and, uh, you know, as always, I'm just lucky to be where I'm at. Mike Gundy, my guest. Mike, what's your Twitter handle? Direct them to your Twitter feed so they know where to find that trick. Yeah, you you, you can go on. It's Cowboy Football, and, and uh, Mike Gundy is, is where it is. Now, now there's they have changed it a couple times because of this new recruiting, but the last time, I think that's what it was. Or at Coach Gundy, I think. At Coach Gundy. Probably, yes, it, it could be at Coach Gundy now. Somebody might have claimed the other one's. Uh, I don't know why anybody would have, would have claimed my name on a Twitter handle. By the time we were doing Twitters, I wasn't winning any games. I doubt anybody would want to claim anything. <laughs> Mike Gundy, uh, that's great. But, but at that point, that's, I think that's where we're at. So That is where you're at. Mike Gundy, my guest. All right, Mike, you mentioned James and Mason. James Washington made a Mason Rudolph. They go in the second and third round of the NFL draft. As their coach, what's it mean to you to not only see those guys go to the NFL, but to go to the same team, the Steelers? Well, it's pretty cool. You know, we played at Pittsburgh this year, and um, it was a like a noon kickoff on the East Coast. We played at the, I think it's called Heinz Field, is where the Steelers play. Sure. And um, before the game, the the brass of the Steelers were down on the field, and they wanted me. They wanted to visit for a second. They were watching all the warmups, and and they they were really speaking uh, highly of James and Mason. Well, we ended up. You know, we had a really good game. I think we had 490 yards passing at halftime, and it was like 42 to seven or something. And so they just lit it up, both those guys. And I, when I came home uh, that night, my youngest son, the 13 year old, he had asked about it, and I said, "You know what's funny, Gage? I said all of the the big dogs for the Pittsburgh Steelers were on the field watching the game, and I said I, I wouldn't be shocked if either Mason or James goes to the Steelers because they saw it live and and a live." performance by these guys are is so influential and so i don't think it could have been better james is uh only going to get better and better you know he's um he fell into the second well they didn't really draft very many white outs in the first round anyway but um but he's so perfect off the field and everything he does he's really just scratched the surface coming from such a small town in texas um and then for mason i thought it was perfect there's been a lot of talk now i guess with uh with ben and Mason going and them taking him in the third round. But 
Mason's going to work hard. He's going to do everything. He's going to he's going to do um, whatever it takes to be as successful as possible. If they ever get ready to call on him, he'll be in there and he'll be ready to go. And I think it's going to be cool. I know there's a lot of Oklahoma State fans that have bought Pittsburgh Steelers stuff in the last couple of weeks. Mike Gundy joining us. All right, Mike, you talked about your new D coordinator. It's Jim Knowles. Now, a lot of head coaches who are looking for assistants or coordinators tend to find somebody in their own network. You've got a huge coaching tree, so there are a lot of people that you could have picked from who you already knew, but you went in a different direction. How did you find Jim? On the Internet. Um, I, I did some research. I, I kind of designed my own um, statistic based on um, – uh, points allowed per possession defended, and what I mean by that is, like um, if you're if you're a defense coordinator at an academy like Army, you may only defend nine or ten possessions a game based on your offense using all the clock, and and you then the the NCA gives you a defensive scoring average. Well, if you're at Oklahoma State, you're probably going to defend fifteen to seventeen possessions because we're going to play so fast. So your defensive scoring average per game is never going to be the same as at a, at a school that doesn't defend the possessions. So um, I got on the Internet. I, I did all the research. I, I took out Hail Marys. I took out um, um, end-of-the-half drives. I took out things, two minutes basically, things that I thought could skew the statistics. Took all the possessions and then points allowed and get, came up with the top 20. And I think Duke was 12th or 14th in the country. Well, there's a lot of coordinators on there. You know, Alabama was way up there. Uh, uh, Florida State was way up there. Different schools. Um, and there's two things that happen there. One, they have really good players. Not that they don't have really good coaches. But, I mean, when you have the best players at times, you're going to have pretty good statistics, period. That's just the way it is. And two, a lot of those guys aren't going to leave and come to Oklahoma State. And then the interesting part, Jim, is about half the guys that I was interested in didn't want to coach defense in a Big 12. Right. So that made it a, 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 a small pool. And then um, when I looked up Duke and I saw the points per average and that um, Jim had been there a while, he's a Cornell grad, he's head coach at Cornell, and I talked to him, I liked him. We interviewed seven or eight guys, really, really good candidates. But um, I thought he was a perfect fit for what we were looking for, and he wanted the challenge of being in the Big 12. And so I was just kind of drawn to him from that standpoint. Um, and as I've done this a number of years, Jim, one thing that I've, I've found that if you hire smart people, then you generally will have success with them. And I don't care what they do. You can take a smart person and say, I need you to, can you figure out a way to change the starter on my car? Well, if you give them time, they can. Can you figure out a way to, to do something at my house? Can you figure out a way to, to do something in football? Can you stop this? Can you stop that? Yeah, they can do it. He's a smart person, but he also understands the teaching and coaching of the Generation Z kids, which are these kids that have only known anything, only known a phone in their hand, um, pop-ups, Instagram, all the different things and the way they learn. They're so much different than even kids five years ago. His technology is through the roof, and so that's why we settled on him to be the coordinator. Mike Gundy joining us. Mike, that's an amazing story. That is a really amazing story. And like you said, you've been in this thing a long time. I mean, being a football coach is a grind, and it can really wear you down. It wears most people down. Now, you start the interview off by talking about, hey, look, there are other things that I can get to outside of football, so maybe that's part of what I'm about to ask you. But how do you stay as fresh and motivated as you are? How do you keep that motivation going? What gets you out of bed every single morning? And not just out of bed, but out of bed and fired up. 
the thing that I, you know, I've been lucky enough to be here 14 years, and so I went through a transition a few years ago, which we talked about this on an interview probably three years ago, that I don't worry about things that don't matter anymore. I really enjoy the players. Um, um, I've, I've somewhat established myself as a, a decent head coach at this level, so if, um, if people don't want me to do something and I think it's the right thing to do, I don't care if they like it or not, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and, and I really devote everything to the players having a terrific four-year experience. And then with the coaches that we have here and all the administrators, we have like 65 people that work in our building that, that are just with football. We talk about all the coaches and strength staff and medical staff, equipment staff, video staff, all the people. I'm the easiest guy in the world to work for. You, I just tell them, you do your job. I'm not going to micromanage. you got to be gone for your third graders' uh, play at the school. That's fine. Don't miss a birthday. If you got to do this, do that, whatever. In the spring, we don't work on Fridays. I mean, and, and I don't worry about a lot of stuff. And then everybody's responsible for doing their job. And if you do your job, we win. We all have success. It makes for a great day. And that, that's really the approach I've taken the last four or five years. And I think the players feel that, Jim. The players are like, this is a cool environment to be in. This is structure. There is accountability. There is discipline. And, and respect is huge in our program. We have a culture that's been created where everybody's respectful from myself all the way down to the newest freshman on our team. We all have, we all have uh, different ways of hand, handling each other. We all get along. I think everybody's just comfortable. And they know, look, I come to work. I do my job. If, if I'm a player, I go to class. I do my job. I work hard. I, I play for the team. I'm unselfish. Coach Gundy's unselfish, and everybody has fun. We don't worry about it. We go out and play on Saturdays. We're, gonna, we're gunslingers. We're going to turn it loose. And most of the time we win. If we don't, we're even going to worry about it. We're going to fix it on Sunday and get better for Monday. That pretty much wraps it up. Man, I wish I had some eligibility. I wish I had some game. I want to come play. Mike, last thought then. I'm not, I could have spent, I appreciate it too. You're not going to spend more time in the introduction talking about all the milestones for the program during your time there. So when you look at where the program was and what the expectations were, and now that you're running off three straight 10-win season, as an alum on top of that, how much pride do you take in all of that? Well, a ton, and, and I've said this to you before that, you know, I wasn't smart enough to know how difficult this job was um, 10, 12 years ago. If I was, it probably would have scared me so much I'd have made mistakes because I just didn't understand. I just kept going. But the, it, it's changed. Like, you know, if you were to read at the end of our season this year after we beat Virginia Tech in the bowl, there, you know, if you read some of the articles, people would say after a disappointing 10-win season huh. with the bowl victory, you know, I was reading it, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, they're putting us up there with the top ten teams in the country now. We win ten games and win a bowl against a really good Virginia Tech team, and everybody's saying it's disappointing. But that's what you get. You know, once you create a monster, you got to feed it. And so that's all okay as long as we as a staff understand the process and what we're dealing with and don't ever take anything out on the players. As long as they're doing the best they can and they're bettering themselves, then we don't ever worry about any of that. But it has changed saying there's no doubt around here if, if you lose a game around here it's like the sky is falling but but that's a good thing so people expect us to do well we expect ourselves to do well and, and it makes us a better football team and a better organization once you create a monster you've got to feed it they won 10 games last year they won a bowl game and they did so against virginia tech they open up against missouri state august 31st mike gundy is the head football coach at oklahoma state mike you are the best so good to have you back mike hey, i always look forward to back. it you're still in la right Sort of, just outside of, but Southern California, right. smack dab in the middle. Well, sometime I'm, when I'm going to be out there, I'm going to look you up. Oh, absolutely, you should, Mike. I'd love to have you here. You got to do that. Gotcha. We can sit down, okay, have you in studio. Yeah, It'd be great. 
You bet. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for calling. I look forward to talking to you here before the season. All right, so CrossFit Nation, if you're not too busy dislocating your spine on unsupervised clean and jerks, or you're not too preoccupied rupturing discs, air-thrusting kettlebells, can we talk for a moment about that very controversial burpees world record that was set down under in Australia? Because right now, that cult... community of CrossFitters is pretty damn hot and bothered. And there's not a kale smoothie in the world gritty enough to calm these folks down. Because yesterday, an Australian woman by the name of Elizabeth Lorente, Lorente, I should say, shattered the record for most burpees completed by a woman in a single hour. The previous record, 1,321. Liz smashed it, 1,490. Or did she? For those that don't know what a burpee is, congrats, you belong to a normal gym with normal people. Those that do know what a burpee is know that it's a standing move that goes to the ground, into the push-up position, into a crouch, into a jump, Finishing with your hands above your head. So imagine one continuous movement that takes you from standing to push-up position to jumping. It's not that easy. And certainly not 1,400 of them in an hour. So the Guinness World Record has a different, those folks, they have a different interpretation of what a burpee is. One that's far, far easier than the so-called universal CrossFit definition. And one that Elizabeth exploited perfectly for a sweet, sweet world record. The version that she did 1,490 times looks a lot like the center of an offensive line holding their position only to jump a quarter inch in the air and kick their legs back and repeat. Essentially, that's what she did and nothing more. And did it for about an hour. I got to be honest. I'm not some kind of athletic freak. But can I say, it was one of the most awkward, unathletic hours I've ever witnessed. And if you see the video and think to yourself, damn, I could do that. Trust me, you could. We all could. And because she shattered the record the way she did, the CrossFit community shattered her on social media. Let me give you a sampling. Quote, this burpee record is BS. If this is considered a burpee, I'd crush the bleep out of that record. She broke the burpee record and didn't do a single burpee. And that's how it went all day long. But wait, there's another angle here. The charity angle. And all you bent eggs didn't know that, did you? She used this world record attempt as a way to raise money for MS. So I hope all you keyboard warriors feel good about yourself now. Cracking a world record holder who also raised money for a, co- a good cause. It's not her fault the system is broken and she gamed it. Everybody relax. The good news is no one really cares about the burpee world record. So even if it is bunk as hell or exactly the way all you box gym rats want it to be, it just doesn't matter. Because nobody knew that record existed before yesterday, and nobody will remember that record tomorrow. So just do you. Just do you. 
control what you can control and worry about you. Just do you. Inhale the paleo, check into your box, buy the t-shirt, and crush the wad. And try not to wreck your life with some devastating injury. Ring the bell for your personal best. Fist bump your internet certified trainer. Update your Facebook status. And then go to work and tell everybody how fast you climb that rope. And then do it all again tomorrow. Do what you always do. That. Life goes on. The overpriced, super dangerous workout will still be there for you tomorrow to crush. I promise. And that record looks so easy to beat. If it is, just do it. Step up and beat it. And raise some money, by the way, for charity while you're doing it. Make sure you have a charity component. Hey, Vance Mack, did the lady who set the burpee record pee out her butt? You know, again, I'm not really about third grade references here, but the reason that person emailed that is because of this call back in the day. And you know who else sucks, Jim? Guys who are just now joining one of those CrossFit places four years after it was cool. I don't care about your wad or your box or how many of those herky-jerky bastardized pull-ups you can do before blowing out your 38-year-old rotator cuff, all right? Just go work out, leave your cell phone at home, and stop acting like it's a huge surprise that you threw your back out after jerking a bunch of weight up over your head and then squatting it until you peed out your butt. It's Brad and Corona. Paul Flannery joining me. Paul, it's great to have you back. How are you? Hey, Jim. Thanks a lot. Got to talk to you about the Celtics, Paul. You know that. They beat Philadelphia 114 to 112 last night, and they closed out a series where four wins were accomplished in a two possession game. So, what do you make of the way Boston executed in the final minutes last night, and really, Paul, in each of those wins? Yeah, no, they, they, were, they were better at the end of games, and that was the difference. And, I mean, it was chaotic, it was messy, but they liked that. I mean, Marcus, that's Marcus Smart's, you know, home environment is, is messy. Um, and, you know, they took it to Philly at the, at the times when it needed to. I can tell you this, there were people in that organization, the Celtics, I mean, who really, really wanted to get that over with last night because they were really concerned that, that the Sixers had finally started to figure things out on them. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, they executed better in, down the stretch. They, they played with more urgency throughout the series, and, uh, frankly, they surprised me. I had the Sixers and Six coming into it, and, and the Celtics took it to them. Paul Flannery, Flannery joining us. Paul, I was going to say about the Celtics. I mean, what do you know about the Celtics after this series that maybe you did not know going into the series? Well, I know that I'm not going to bet against them anymore. Um, Jason Tatum, for one thing, uh, this was not the Jason Tatum we saw during the regular season. We saw sna- uh, flashes of it, snippets of it, but we didn't see it consistently game in and game out. He's really good, and that obviously gives them something they haven't had in the past, which is a guy who can create his own shot. Al Horford ha- has been phenomenal throughout these playoffs. I mean, in a LeBron-less universe, he's been the best player in the Eastern Conference during the postseason. And then Terry Rozier, you know, he's a real confident guy. I don't think Terry is surprised, but I think the rest of us are surprised that he's really handled that starting point guard role and done a tremendous job. I mean, he, he's a, he was a difference maker early on in that series. We're talking to Paul Flannery. Paul, go back to Al Horford for a minute. It's amazing uh, what he means to them exactly. I mean, Brett Brown said afterwards, quote, I mean, how good is this guy? Really, if we didn't appreciate Al Horford by now, we'd better wake up. Can you explain exactly what he's meant to the Celtics during this postseason? 
Yeah, no, he's he's been tremendous because uh, defensively, defense is Al Horford's calling card, and we still don't really judge defense all that well. We can see blocks, and we can see the big man doing things and the guy on the ball, but Horford guarded Ben Simmons, and he guarded Joel Embiid, and he did so without help on either one of them, and that was the whole key to their game plan because the second they had to bring help, especially on Embiid, those shooters would start to pick him apart. So Horford did that, and he stayed in front of Simmons. He mirrored him the whole way, and he battled with Embiid. And then, you know, the other thing that he can do is he's a really good playmaker out on the perimeter. And what they did in this series that they haven't done before is they went to him on the post when they need buckets, and he delivered that. So all these things about, you know, average Al, this, that, and the other, he's the, he's the non-star, all-star, forget about it. He is that good, and he's been playing tremendously. You know, I keep repeating this, Paul, but it makes no sense. But how is Boston in the conference finals, despite the fact that they do not have Gordon Hayward or Kyrie Irving? How do you explain that? I think a lot of it has to go back to the way Brad Stevens approaches this team from start to finish, which is, you know, everybody talks about being on a day-to-day basis. He really believes in being in the moment and going from day-to-day, not making excuses for who's not available, playing with who he has, and that permeates that entire team. You know, it's really funny talking to some of these guys, Jim, because they're, they're, they're young in a lot of ways. They're 20, 21 years old. They have really bought into the concept of Mindset, the book by uh, Carol Dweck, which is a big point of emphasis for Brad Stevens, which is staying in the moment and, you know, and, and living in it and not worrying about tomorrow, not worrying about yesterday. And I think that has served them well throughout the rest of the season. I mean, it's weird. They're the only ones who are not surprised. And I think you know, we should probably recognize that that is a big part of their DNA. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that book. I think Eric Spolstra, wasn't he real big on that book, yep. too? So, Dan Van Gundy, a lot of coaches. Thibodeau, yep. Paul Flannery joining us. Now, what was Boston able to do, for instance, against Simmons? I mean, many teams were not able to really deal with this guy during the regular season. Miami wasn't able to handle this guy in the first round. What was Boston able to do against him to make it so tough on him? They did two smart things. One is they got back in transition all the time. I mean, they did not really go after the offensive boards too much. So they, they got back in transition, and Baines was huge in this because Baines would take up the space, the area around the free-throw line, and prevent it, um, and then also get back out to Joel Embiid. So a lot of teams miss that, and they get run over in transition. So they cut off the transition game. And then Horford is big enough to stay in front of him. The advantage that Simmons has is that the guards can't really stay in front of him because he just back him down, back him down. And Horford can obviously keep him in front because, look, I mean, I think Simmons is a wonderful player. He, was, he had my vote for rookie of the year. Um, but his range is about five feet. And if you can keep him out of there, you can really sort of cut them off at the, at the head. Paul Flannery joining us. All right, so what about Brad Stevens? He's done an amazing job in the season and during the postseason, almost to the point where you can make it all about him and forget about the players, Paul. So what's the fine balance or the right balance of appreciation for what Stevens is doing and what his players are doing? Yeah, it's funny you say that. That drives him crazy. Um, you know, and it, I, I know him pretty well, and that, that really bothers him. Um, I think, you know, look, I think Brad deserves an awful lot of credit for, for getting them to this place, as we talked about earlier, and he's tremendous and making in-game adjustments, tactical adjustments. He's really, really good at that. But look, it's the players. It's Tatum. It's Jalen Bra- Brown, who had a, had a bad hamstring, comes off and, I don't know what he shot last night. It was like 10 for 13 or something like that in an elimination game. The kid's 21 years old. We talked about Rozier. We talked about Horford. We talked about all these guys. They're good players. Mark is smart. These are good players, and he's put them in position to win. So it goes hand-in-hand hand for sure, of course. But, you know, they're not getting to this point without some talent. And I think people need to recognize that they have talent, more talent, frankly, than they had last year. 
We're talking to Paul Flannery. All right, so you have LeBron now in Toronto. Literally nothing worked against LeBron. They have no answer for him. They never have had one. In the first round, Indiana did a pretty good job, made him work for everything. And in fact, it looked like they might not survive that first round. Now we go forward. LeBron is at the height of all his powers. What do you think Stevens does, or how does he go about trying to scheme against LeBron? Yeah, the first thing is what do you do with him, right? And I think... I think the Celtics have a little bit of an advantage over Toronto in that their guards can get up and pressure, and you know they can kind of make them uncomfortable, a lot like Indiana did. They have they have really good size to handle Kevin Love and that kind of thing. Because I think LeBron's going to go going to go crazy. He's going to go off. The, you know, they're going to throw three or four different guys at him. The key to beating the Cavs is is denying that Kevin Love Kyle Korver action and keeping Tristan Thompson off the boards. Tristan Thompson has killed the Celtics the last three or four years with offensive rebounds. So if they can minimize those two aspects, then they absolutely have a chance, provided they make enough shots. I think LeBron's going to have huge nights in this series, big, big, big performances. And, you know, you got to have to live with that a little bit. It's when the other guys get going that you have a problem. All right, so stay on that topic for one minute. For instance, when you look at the difference between how Cleveland played against Indiana and then how they played against Toronto, is it just a matter of the matchups, or maybe did Kevin Love finally find something? Yeah, I think it's I think it's matchups which led to Kevin Love finding something. I mean, the Pacers put Thaddeus Young on him, who's kind of an unheralded player, but you know he's got a he's got a, a, a quickness advantage on him and, and a strength advantage on him. The Celtics have a bunch of guys like that that could that could that could hurt him. Um, you know, Toronto that's a tough matchup. You know, Ibaka didn't didn't do much. Valanciunas didn't do much against him. So I think that's that's really where it comes down to. In a weird way, I think Toronto was a better team than Indiana. But they matched up a little bit worse than Indiana did. Paul Flannery joining me for a few more moments. So before I let you go, Paul, let me ask you about the Sixers one last time. So then, considering what happened to them in that series, what's their biggest priority in the offseason? Is it Ben Simmons and his continued growth, or is it something else? I mean, I think they got to get better internally, Simmons and Embiid. I, I, I was a little taken aback, Jim, by the fact that the Sixers kept talking about the future. And they kept talking about, you know, like, we got time, we got time. And you know, maybe, probably, yeah, but these opportunities don't come along very often. So I think they got to get focused now. No more, no more underdog, no more surprise. Like, they are going to come into the season with a target on their back, especially Simmons and Embiid. And those guys have to keep getting better. I think they got to, they, they have a chance to get another really good player. I mean, there's, you know, people like to whisper about LeBron. I don't know if that's possible or not, but I think they need another guy in there. Maybe it's Markel Fultz. Maybe it is. Maybe it's Dario Sarge. I don't know. But when you looked at the Celtics and the Sixers from top to bottom, yeah, Simmons and Embiid are great. Was there really that much different talent-wise, three through nine? I'm not sure there was. So I think they have to continue building that roster, and they have to figure out what they're going to do with J.J. Redick because, you know, it would be perfect for him to come back, but I don't know. They may not be able to pay him. So do you think that when they look back on this series, will they think to themselves, it is part of the process, we were actually ahead of schedule, and it's going to help us ultimately? Or are they going to look back on that and say, hey, listen, it was right in front of us. We had an opportunity and we let it get away regardless of where we were in our process. I think they'll think about that as this summer goes along, to be honest with you. I really do. Because, you know, like everybody had, most people had them winning this series. And Right from game one, it was clear the Celtics were there to play, and the Sixers were like, okay, you know, that wasn't us, we'll get it back. And it's hard to get it back in the playoffs. It's really hard. So hopefully that's a lesson learned for them. Um, You know, I I think they're going to regret it, honestly. Good night now! You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. Well, wait until you hear this one. Half Price Coffee. 
That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's.